today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's start here uh, with something that is less than goodness. It's a complicated story. It's an unfortunate story. It's a disturbing story. There's a lot of different elements of this. Jerome Messam is a running back, had been with Calgary for a long time, was with Saskatchewan this year. Yesterday, he was released by the team after being charged with voyeurism. Now, reports say the story is that he taped a consensual sexual encounter with a woman without her knowledge. Now, this recording reportedly, allegedly, he still has this. It was never uploaded online. It was never posted anywhere. There was no one else who has seen it, but apparently this was done and it is against the law to do such a thing. A couple things here. I'm sure a few people are saying, wait, that's against the law? Well, that's a different story for another day. You might want to look that up in the criminal code just in case you're you're hearing this and saying, I was not aware. Uh, but the CFL, after Saskatchewan released Messam, the CFL subsequently said, Yet he's released, and any team that tries to sign him to a contract, we will not register that contract. He is not welcome to play in this league at all. In other words, he's out. He's been charged, gone. I heard this. This is not the first time, by the way. This has happened also other places, other times in the league, where someone has been charged with something in the domestic-slash-sexual violence area, and they have been told they are no longer welcome in the league. So is this right, though? Is this right? And the the question is, as unacceptable, as unacceptable, clearly, unequivocally, as unacceptable as domestic or sexual violence is, do we want to be in in the role of playing judge and jury before the actual judge and jury get to do their work? Because here's the issue. If Jerome Messam ultimately is found guilty or pleads guilty or acknowledges his guilt, I will have no issue whatsoever with the league coming down on him like a ton of bricks and saying, we have, you're not welcome back here. We don't have a place in this league for people who do those kind of things. I have no problem with guilty people losing their privileges. I do have questions. I do have concerns about people who, by the letter of the law, technically, you are innocent until proven guilty. Jerome Messam at this moment is innocent. Technically, legally, he is now out of work, though, and can't work because they have decided he can't. This follows the case of Roberto Osuna. You know about him, Blue Jays reliever, who was accused. He is It's still to come up in court, but was accused of domestic violence. He's been suspended 75 games, coming back this weekend, was just traded to Houston. Is this fair? Is this the way we want, is this the way this stuff should be handled? Let me bring in Lior Samfiru. He is a lawyer. He's an employment lawyer. He is the host of the Unemployment Hour here on 900 CHMA. You know his voice. Lior, thanks for doing this today. Good morning, Scott. Uh, I think, just for a little background, I think most everyone, including yourself, would be in agreement that there is no room for domestic or sexual assault or violence in our society. That's fine. We don't even need to go there. I think that's an established position. And I think a lot of other people, most other people would say that people in privileged positions, professional athletes for one of them, probably have a higher standard than the rest of us to maintain that privilege. But if you are charged before you are convicted, should is this the proper response to be losing your job, losing your opportunity to work? Is this the right way to handle this? Well, Scott, legally speaking, by being charged, irrespective of, of how reprehensible the conduct is, just the act of being charged is not reason for your job to be taken away or, in this case, for a team to let you go and the league to refuse to have you signed again. 
that said, that said, remember that irrespective of any criminal charge, once these allegations are raised, the team, the league, are, have their own obligation to conduct some sort of an investigation, which is separate and apart from anything that's happening on the criminal front. And if they conduct an investigation, they've concluded that, yes, we believe it's more likely than not that this person did what's alleged, well, that's a different issue altogether. I'm going to take this a step further in the sense that he actually may be uh, uh, charged, take to, taken to trial, and win the trial. In other words, he may not be convicted, but the team can still have potential reason to let him go because the criminal standard it's, is a much higher standard than the civil standard. So in the criminal world, as you know, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, where in the non-criminal world, we look at what's called balance of probabilities. In other words, is it more likely than not that the person did what is alleged? So if he's not convicted because there's no, there was reasonable doubt, the league conducting its own investigation may conclude, we think it's more likely than not, based on what we've seen and heard, that he did it. Therefore, he's in breach of his obligation, including a morality clause that would be in every contract. Therefore, he is out. So as far as presumption of innocence, presumption of innocence is a criminal standard. Uh, I mean, if he was never charged, we can make a judgment on him, right? If someone makes an allegation, we saw this thing with with the prime minister recently, with that thing that happened in Kokanee, with the, where, where people were, uh, a reporter alleged that Justin Trudeau had right. groped her. There was no criminal charge. So we are free then to make our own judgments and to render our own essentially verdicts about that because it's not in the courts. But once it's in the courts, there is a different standard, is there not? Well, there's a different standard with respect to, to criminal convictions, but from a, uh, the perspective of a, an employer, in this case a team and its employee, the player, this is a contractual dispute. It's not a criminal dispute. So even if the police had decided, you know what, or, or non-filed criminal charges, maybe someone went to the team and said, hey, team, this, your player did this to me, but she decides not to file criminal charges. At that point, the team, the league, would be obligated to investigate this. And if they determine that it's more likely than not that he did it, they could still take measures. Now, of course, the player would have the ability to challenge that determination. If he says, I didn't do it, he could take legal action for breach of contract. Uh, that said, all the team would have to show is that, that, that they had reasonable ground, that they, the evidence showed that he was more likely than not to, to conclude that. Remember, the criminal process takes a long time. I mean, even if he is convicted, that could take a year, that could take three years, and the team is not obligated to say, well, we just have to wait and see. If they cannot conclude on their own that uh, uh, he actually uh, did it, they could suspend them with pay uh, pending the criminal uh, uh, resolution of the matter, or they can reinstate them pending the criminal resolution of the matter. But at the end of the day, they have to conduct their own investigation separate and apart than what happens on the criminal side. Yeah, you know, and, and I understand what you're saying, and I, 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 I get that. I guess my, my issue with this one, Lior, is if the team had, if this charge came forward, if this allegation came forward and the team said, you know what, we just, we're not, we're not feeling like we need, we can handle having you on the team. They're entitled, I guess, to take their action. I'm more confused or puzzled or disturbed, I guess, a little by the league ultimately saying, not only can he not play for your team, we're not going to let him play anywhere in this league prior to any kind of conviction. And even let's say the league or the team did an investigation. 
the story that we're getting about this, where it is an allegation that he taped someone during a consensual act, boy, oh boy, that to me seems like the ultimate he said, she said. If he says that she said it was fine to be taped and she says, no, I didn't say, I mean, we're, th- this is a really difficult one. I, I, I've, I have difficulty with the idea that we have leapt to a conclusion of guilt and banned a guy from making a living in this case. Well, I can tell you that if it is a he said, she said at this point, and they don't have necessarily reason to believe one person over the other, then they legally actually cannot do that. And he would have the right to pursue this matter at an arbitration uh, or, or before the courts where he would either get reinstated uh, or the league would be ordered to, to back off its declaration. If it's as simple as that, well, we don't know, but we just don't like the idea of someone that's accused of this uh, playing for us. No, they, that is jumping the gun. That would be illegal completely. On the other hand, if they can show we looked into it, and here's the evidence that we saw to conclude that he did do that, so it's no longer just a he said, she said, that may be a different issue. But you're absolutely right that if, if it is one of those things, well, we don't know, but we're going to jump to conclusions just because we don't like the nature of the allegations. That is something they cannot do. Would this be the case? This is clearly an athlete. It's a public platform that he's on. It's a league that requires uh, public engagement and people to be involved. They want. They don't want to tick off their whole fan base. Would this be the case if this was a grocer or if this was an accountant or if this was a doctor or if this was a lawyer? I mean, if it was in a private office. How would it normally be handled in this case if somebody was charged? Excellent question. There would be a very different result. If you're not a public figure, if you're not someone that's identified with your organization, essentially what you do in your private life doesn't impact or won't impact uh, what happens at work unless there's a reason to think that the conduct would translate into the workplace. So if you're working in the mailroom and you're accused of uh, voyeurism in this way uh, in your private life, then your employer cannot, as, as reprehensible as they consider the conduct to be, they cannot take any legal measure against you because of that. Uh, that said, with a professional athlete, a politician, uh, uh, an actor, where they represent their brand, they represent their organization, they have a different obligation, and most of them would have morality clauses in their contract, which specifically address the fact that you cannot do anything in your personal life that's going to impact our image and at that situation, it's literally impossible to employ someone. If you're a public figure and you're accused of something that the general public is going to be consider or is going to consider to be uh, inappropriate, how can your employer put you out there in the public? It's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt their brand. So yes, if you're in the public figure, you're going to be held to a much higher standard when it comes to your personal life than someone that's that's not out there. Someone that's uh, working in an office, minding their own business. A very different standard. So Gian Gomeshi, as an example, everyone exactly. knows that story. He was found not guilty, but was not given his job back. That's because something similar there. So, okay, ultimately, let's say, and we're, we don't know yet, this this has just happened, so we're not assuming guilt or innocence right now. Well, we're assuming innocence because that's his. he's got that presumption of innocence. But let's say he's found guilty. Any problem with the league at that point saying, you're done, you were guilty of this, we don't have a place for you in the league. Any problem with that? No, th- there would be no problem. And, and, and again... When it comes to these issues, it's not about what is fair. It really goes down to contracts. Uh, you know, there would be contracts, collective agreements, and those would specify. Those are very comprehensive documents, and they would address these types of situations and would give the league and the team the power to do what they've done. So in, in, in the absence of a contract, uh, the league probably wouldn't be able to do that. 
but these things are taken care of, so I would have no problem uh, with them exercising their power under the contract to, to ban him in the event that he is found to have done what's alleged. What if he's found not guilty? Does he have recourse? Could he sue the league? Could he sue the team and say, look, I was not guilty. You cost me my career. You damaged my reputation. I expect all the money that I should have been paid and then some. Absolutely. If he's not convicted, and beyond that, if, he, if the league can show that despite the lack of conviction, they have evidence to show that it was more likely than not that he did it. If they don't have that evidence, they jumped the gun because they didn't like the allegations. Yes, he would have recourse against them for future loss of earnings, for past loss of earnings, for uh, other damages as well. So absolutely, that could be an expensive uh, proposition for the league. Although in some cases, they may think, our image is so important to us that if we have to write this one player a check at some point down the road, we'll take the risk because the, the other part of this is it's worse for us to bring him in and have our audience alienated. So they, they, these are calculated decisions, and oftentimes large organizations that have these public figures would rather pay someone money to go away than to put them back in their position and alienate many others. Lior Samfiru, uh, he's an employment lawyer. You can hear him here on 900 CHML with the Employment Hour. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Thank you, Scott. It's a complicated one. It is, uh, you hope for the CFL's sake, which is a weird thing to say, you hope for the CFL's sake that Jerome Messam is convicted, I guess. I guess that's what you're expecting, because if he's turns out that this is not anything, or if he's not guilty, you have pushed a guy out of the league and prevented him from working for what? It's, this, is, this is the danger, I think, this is the danger, while we want to get rid of sexual assault and domestic violence, there's no question about that, and if he's guilty, he should be gone, but this is the danger of deciding that someone is guilty or is not tenable for us to have in our league prior to knowing exactly what's happening. It's a very, very complicated case, and it's not the first one. I'm sure we'll have others. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I just got back from the cottage last week. I think I've mentioned that a couple times. I must be longing to get back up there or something. Uh, But there were more than a few times while I was up there sitting on the dock, sitting in the Muskoka chair under the sun or on the boat, throwing a line into the water. You're just thinking to yourself, "I I could really, really get used to this. This is something that I could see enjoying for more than a week, a year, or a couple of weeks, even a year. I could see I, I could see myself up there, laptop on my lap, appropriately, sitting on the chair, working from there. What if I could do that? What if I could get the Wi-Fi to work? That's it's a, a priority. But what if I could get the Wi-Fi to work and I could sit on the dock at the cottage and do all the work that I needed to do, nowhere close to civilization? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, some people are, in fact, doing that. It seems to be a thing. More and more people, in fact, are doing this. It is the dream, and some people are making it come true. One of those people, I understand, is my next guest. His name is Dean Michel. He's a realtor with Century 21 Granite Realty Group. He joins me now. Dean, thanks for doing this today. Hey, no problem, Scott. Uh, this, uh, when I, as I go through this, this really kind of sounds perfect, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's it's really a, a lifestyle. It, it's it's not really a job; it's a lifestyle, and uh, that's how I approached uh, my transition. Because you um, did this, you did this. I'm doing it now. Uh, we we moved. Uh, I was in media sales for about 20 years in Toronto, 
And uh, I grew up on Balsam Lake, and we always kept our cottage here. And uh, it was just uh, every Sunday, the, the sort of the dreaded drive back <laughs> to the city. Okay? Yes. Yeah, I know that. it. <laughs> and so uh, my wife and I, we, we chatted, and we said, well, what if we could make this happen full time? And uh, we decided to make the leap. We sold our house in Toronto. I, I uh, resigned my position in media sales and uh, started a new career uh, to help other people do the same thing, make the transition. So, uh, yeah, we sell real estate and, and help other people achieve their lifestyle dreams up here in cottage country. The, uh, you mentioned the drive back, uh, getting off ta- off talk here, but it seems to me every time people go up for the vacation, all the relaxation that you may have got is gone in the time frame it takes to get from the cottage back to home again. It's just, you're white knuckled, you're angry, you're furious, your blood pressure is up. Anything you had done good for yourself is gone in that time. Well, it's true. I mean, and the drive up to cottage country, I always noticed that I started to decompress and my mind actually started to open up a bit just when I see the open spaces and and, uh, you know, I don't have to look up to see the sky up here. Uh, it, it just mellowed you right out. You're starting so to sound anyway. like a tragically hip song already. <laughs> so it's worked. It, it has worked for you, the idea of, of making that move and do the, doing the work from there. Most certainly. Um, again, back to the lifestyle, and then I'll get into the work aspect. Uh, the lifestyle is, is such that, you, uh, well, how should I put it? You enjoy it so much that the work becomes a part of the lifestyle. So uh, your work isn't, especially my my field, it's not nine to five. So I'm not rushing in to get to that early morning meeting. Uh, it's, I have to work when I have to work. So I might work Saturday nights, I might work Sunday morning, but then I have I'm at the dock. Like, I'm already where I want to be. Are you hearing about others? I mean, I, I've been reading about some, and, and I know, you know, of course there's going to be some. There's always going to be some. But when we're talking about this, are there more and more people who are trying to do this thing, or is it still very rare? You know, all of my friends are very jealous of our move. <laughs> and uh, they always say, well, if I could make it happen, I will. And and I always suggest, well, don't don't wait. Like, what are you waiting for? If you can do it, find a way. Because, you know, it's not, you know, where you work. It's about where you want to live. Yeah, well, and, yes and, and no. Dean, let me just jump in for a sec. Because I, I, one of the things, and you said it off the top, is that you change jobs to allow yourself to have a job that would, that would work for this. But I'm wondering, could you have done this if you had kept your job in Toronto? That would be tough. I, I, although... Depending on the company, of course, uh, me being in sales, I'm not tied to a desk, or I wasn't tied to a desk. Uh, but certainly if your employer was open to it, uh, maybe you go into the city once or twice a week to start the transition, right? You live up here, but go into the city when you need to. And I know people who do that. When I said off the top that it sounds perfect, I mean, it, it certainly does sound idyllic. It really does. It sounds perfect for me, for other people, when you th- think about it. And you, you don't necessarily have to factor in the work. Just the idea of what you just described, living off the dock, sounds perfect. And if I am self-employed, or if, or like yourself, if I'm working on commissions in real estate, something like that, it it's fine. Because it's 
I know that I have to work hard to make a living. I have to be hustling even though I'm working there. That That's, that's fine. I wonder yeah. how diff- different this might be for an employer, though, who's got a, 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 an employee working on a salary and the employee says, you know what, I'm just not going to be in the office. I'll be working from my cottage. If I'm an employer, I got to think that I'm probably going to have some questions about that. Oh, certainly I could see that happening. I mean, it really would depend on the nature of your, your business and it would certainly uh, depend on the relationship with your employer. But who knows? I mean, if you really want that lifestyle, maybe look for other employment yeah. opportunities. Yeah, because if I go to a job interview, i got to believe, if I go to a job interview and the first thing he says is, now are you are you around? I say, well, I'll actually be working from my cottage in the Kawarthas. <laughs> I'm thinking my chances of getting that job are, pro- unless he's really, or she is really cool about it, I'm probably looking for something else. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But it, it's funny, especially for the entrepreneurs out there, um, there's tons of opportunity up here. There really is. And, and with the influx of more people deciding to live here year-round, uh, you really, if you're creative in, in your business opportunities and have some vision, uh, who knows? Uh, really, that the population is growing up here at full-time residents. And the other thing I might add, too, that like the biggest challenge we had, Scott, was, was, uh, was Internet and data, that sort of thing. Well, I'm, I'm noticing companies are making... Uh, investments in infrastructure and uh it's coming well you can't do it without that right you couldn't possibly do most of the jobs unless you have a reliable internet service now correct correct but uh, some places have high speed uh some are slowly getting high speed we currently don't but our office does so you know if we need to we zip into the office for that high speed connectivity so you're one of the seven people in Canada still on the dial-up tone. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We have we we serve through a satellite dish, <laughs> but I say the satellite serves us. Uh, but and it can be challenging at times, especially with uh, with kids who uh, like to chew up data, like mm. to chew up Fruit Loops in the morning. <laughs> See, here's the thing, Dean. I mean, there's a number of things, and again, I I love the idea, but uh, there's so many things that come to mind of drawbacks or possibilities. It's one thing to work at home for a few days or to work on the road where you're not in the office, where you're somewhere else, but cottage life is supposed to kind of be a chill-out, relaxing life. I got to think for a lot of people, if you had that, it's, it's, it would probably be very difficult to not over chill, to not just fall so far into that cottage. Honestly, that, that you would yeah. just take it too easy. And that, that to me would be a risk. That, that can be a trap. But again, it certainly depends on the individual. You have to be driven, right? You have bills to pay at the mm. end of the month. And uh, if you're driven, you, you'll find your time to chill. There's, there's lots of that, that's for sure. And, but you've put and, a caveat. You've put an important caveat there, and that is if you're driven. That's it. Yeah. Because yeah, again, I, mean, I could see a lot of people saying, you know what, I'm going to go for a quick, quick water ski and four hours later, you're still out there. <laughs> yes. Seriously. Yes. Although, I mean, I have made sales calls for my fishing boat. Oh, the dream. Um, okay. Yeah. Th- I mean, again, that, that is the dream. Uh, uh, what strikes me though, is you do have to be a certain type of person with a certain type of personality and a certain type of work ethic that would allow you to pull this off. Most certainly. 
I don't because I, oh, yeah. when you say it's for everybody, or when you suggest it, I'm I'm not sure it is. I I really think that you would have to be a certain type of person because the risk of basically turning it into a full time vacation with a little bit of work when I'm feeling like it is very high. I can see that for sure. It's same as you know when people started working from home, right? You had to have the discipline to not just go, oh, okay, I'm going to go watch uh, TV or do whatever, right? Uh, you worked in the city, so you know all about the city. You know, you know about the how things work here. I, I was reading this morning uh, about someplace, and I can't remember what the city was now. That's testing a four-day work week so that people can have more time off. I was reading recently, uh, I think yesterday, in the New York Post that millennials are cl- quitting in large numbers their lucrative jobs to quote live their best life. Um, now we're talking about this. I, I'm almost wondering: Are we moving sometimes too far? from the concept of, you know, you got to work hard and then you'll vacation hard and rest hard when you do that. It, that has been what we traditionally have done in this society. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Are we, are we moving too far from that? Well, uh, you know, uh, some people would say the Protestant work ethic was uh, a bit too Protestant. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's here. I'm working hard. I'm playing hard all the time. It's, it's both. But again, that's that individual. If if uh, if you want it, you have to work for it. There's no doubt about it. One other thing, I got to let you go. One other because you probably got to get out fishing or sell a home from your boat or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, here here's the biggest of all the conundrums for me. Here here's the biggest one for me. The cottage, and I only get to go up there once one week a year. We rent a place. Where's your cottage? Well, we rent a place on in near Bob Cajun, so right around the okay. corner from you. Um, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Sturgeon actually. Okay. Uh, So the cottage is where I go as the place to get away from everything. It's very different from my life. So I get to go there and I relax. It's where, as you say, you open your brain and everything else. If I turn that into my office, I kind of think, well, am I not ruining that utopia then? Because now I'm bringing the office to the place that I don't want to have the office. And in time, won't I need then to go and find a different place? Because now I've just turned that into my (laughs) busy place. I think you're overthinking it. You think so? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's, uh, for me, I haven't found it a challenge at all that way. Uh, I, I, to get away from things, I just walk down to the dock, right? And then I go back into the office, at my home office or wherever I am. And, uh, yeah, it's worked out fine. It really has. It is, uh, it is certainly, as I say, the dream for many people. Uh, Dean, really appreciate you doing this. Dean Michelle, uh, who is a realtor with Century 21 Granite Realty Group now up in the Balsam Lake area. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Okay, Scott. Thank you. Uh, look, that, that does sound wonderful. It really does. Uh, and maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe it's a personality thing because I think I see in myself the opportunity to really say, wait a second. I can take an extra hour here. I can go out fishing for an extra hour. I can lie on the dock for an hour. I'm a pretty motivated person, but I could see myself, and I think a lot of people could see themselves very easily. It's a, it's a lovely thing if you can do it, and if you can work hard and you can have the discipline. I, I could see myself very easily starting to take a step back and work a little less hard. Man, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> maybe that's a good thing for all of us. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a believer in the Protestant work ethic, but it, it, you know, maybe it's a good thing for all of us to take a step back and, and chill a little bit more. Uh, one other thing that, uh, that I should probably should have asked Dean, but, um, was reading something this week. You may have seen the same story. 
waterfront cottage house cottage prices in Ontario are going through the roof right now. They're blaming it or crediting it, whatever, to baby boomers who are retiring and wanting to find one of those places for their retirement. If you've also got people who are looking to make a change of life, go, you, you know, you think the house prices in Hamilton are going up and are high. Wait till you try and find a waterfront cottage with some lakefront property and a dock and everything else up there at, with the demand that's going on. Woo. Better have a few jobs and then you won't have time to go to the cottage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you have Discovery Channel as part of your cable package, assuming you still have a cable package, you probably know last week was Shark Week, which is their annual celebration slash fear-inducing week of programming all about sharks. I mean, technically, it's supposedly educational, but the underlying current is be terrified of being anywhere near the water. These gigantic creatures with razor-sharp teeth are simply waiting to rip you into shreds. Which, of course, means that the week after Shark Week and for weeks from on here, there are many people who watch who are saying, I'm not going anywhere near any water source. I don't care if it's a lake in Ontario where there are no sharks. I don't care if it's a pond. I am not going near water. And I'm certainly not going near water that I can't see clearly down to the bottom. Sharks, for some reason, terrify us. And if you think about it, it's a completely irrational fear. So what is the genesis of this? Well, let me bring on... Dr. John Huber is a clinical forensic psychologist. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, a nonprofit organization that brings lasting and positive change to the lives of individuals that suffer from mental health issues. He joins us now. Dr. Huber, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you for having me on. Why are we so terrified of these creatures that we are never going to encounter in our life in all likelihood? Why do they terrify us like they do? Well, well first of all, last week was the best most safest week to go to the ocean because all the <laughs> killer sharks were on television. So <laughs> that being said, that being said, you know, it all started with this movie called Jaws and it frightened the living daylights out of us. And part of the reason why is most of us are not afraid, for example, of falling asleep and dying in our sleep, but we're afraid of trauma and dying from that trauma, especially being dismembered, disemboweled and devoured by a creature. So that right there elicits extreme terror in a lot of us if we're thinking, you know, we're going to go hiking out on that wonderful backcountry trail and we come across a grizzly. We don't really want to be eaten. We'd rather go back home uh, that night and crawl into our nice warm bed and go to sleep and just never wake up. That would be the preference. So, yeah, that would be the preference. Yeah, exactly. So we've got that, that, that emotionally laden basic general feel fear for everybody we also have an amazing marketing man steven spielberg with the original jaws and all the following jaws movies and then we have this wonderful program every summer we have a week of let's watch sharks tear people apart tell these gruesome (laughs) horror stories that being said, you have roughly 140 to 1 odds of actually drowning at a beach. Now, that's taking everybody into account, people who don't know how to swim and things like that. Shark bites, you have about 1 in 12 million odds of being bitten. And if you're bitten, the odds go up or go down to like 1 in 4 million that you'll actually die from that. Okay. So, so we have such an extreme 
statistical odds of, of being bitten and dying from a shark, yet we don't worry about drowning when we go to the beach. You've mentioned so many things that I want to jump into a bunch of these. Starting with let's let's go to, okay. let's go to the bear first, the bear idea, because I think you, uh, clearly I believe you're right that none of us want to envision ending our lives at the mouth of a razor sharp animal ripping us to shreds, whether that's a shark or a bear. However, correct. I do think that there's something else to that. I think if you see a bear, you can at least see the bear coming. You see a lion, if you're in Africa, you can see a lion coming. The thing that terrifies, in my theory, is the thing that terrifies us, or one of them about sharks is they come up from the water, you can't see them coming, and then boom, all of a sudden you just see the fin and you're there and you're dead. And the unknown, the (laughs) the inability to know that this terrifying thing is coming towards you is one of the problems. You know, that, that is part of the problem, but, you know, there's a lot of places. I lived in Miami. The water was crystal clear, and you could see the sharks swimming down below you. Uh, it, it didn't help any. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not just the boogeyman, then, in the dark room. No, it's not just the boogeyman in the dark room. And, and it's partially to blame is the way human brains work and how they process and think it, about information. Now, we, we use all these different tricks to help us process information fast. One of them is is stereotyping. Now, I'm not Mm. talking about the stereotyping where we go and discriminate against somebody, but the stereotyping that tells us, hey, this person walks up and they're listening to your favorite music. You automatically classify them in a better group than someone who's playing your worst, least favorite music. Um, And it's just an automatic stereotype and, and we use that to say, hey, now I've got a conversation piece. I can talk to this person. Well, we also use these things called uh, algorithms to solve problems. You know, A plus B equals C. And that's real simple. But when we start getting into complex things like fear and, you know, am I going to survive this scary movie scenario kind of thing, we don't have a perfect formula, an algorithm. So we do, like most computer virus programs, antivirus programs do, and they use what's called heuristics, where it takes part of the information and lumps it together and says, okay, this looks like a virus. It, it kind of sounds like a virus, so I'm going to treat it like a virus. And one of the models of heuristics we have is what we call availability heuristics. Now, pair that with this fear of being torn apart and shredded by sharp teeth and sharks, bears, grizzly type horrific dismemberment deaths are the first thing that come to our mind. So they're very available to us. And that's why we think, I hate sharks. I'm afraid of going to the beach. I'm not getting in the water. I think, if my memory is correct, I think Jaws was 1975, the summer of 1975, something around there anyway. What, what, what did, I don't know if you remember this, but what did we think of sharks before Jaws? Because, I mean, you've pointed to the fact that it terrified us and, you know, we're all afraid to go back in the water. What was our view on sharks before then? Well, I remember going, I live in Texas, and I remember going to the Texas coast all the time before Jaws, and I was never concerned with sharks. You know, I was more worried about the, the tar that washed up on the shore from some of the oil rigs that had <laughs> leaks and stuff like that. That was like, oh, stay away from the tar. It's going to kill you. And uh, the sharks never entered my mind. Then after that film was released, 
Wow, total different perspective on on the world of the ocean. <laughs> well, listen, sharks are still, I think, the only animal that have their own theme music. You know, John Williams, uh, <laughs> it's the only animal I can think of that if you hear that song, you immediately know what we're talking about as far as, uh, as, as I mean, I'm talking not about Yogi Bear's theme song or something, that one's obvious, right. but no, it, it is... Um, the irony of this, and I did, I had to look this up because I, I was sure that sharks could not possibly be, when you gave the numbers of what was it, one in 14 million, your chance of, uh, of being bitten? One in 12 million. One in 12 million. I thought even that, the chances are, they can't be the most dangerous animal that more people die. And I found this shocking. More people die of being killed by hippopotami every year than by sharks. And yet and- we look at them, we say, they're cute. And, and cows. Uh, really? Cows more kill more die. people. How yeah. do people die from cows? Yeah. Meat poisoning? Getting squished up against the, pay, uh, against the fence. Okay. Having them kick you in the head, things like that. All right. And you don't even think about it. You know, you just, it's a cow. We get milk from it. That's where we get ice cream from. Cows are so happy. Look at the, <laughs> look at the uh, Chick-fil-A commercials, you know? Yeah, well, 4.5, another number I found, 4.5 million people suffer dog bites every year, and we invite them into our house and give them names. Exactly. <laughs> so is this entire, and, sorry, go ahead. Well, and, and, and you know, we, we make them parts of our family, and then they bite and tear at people, and they've killed kids and things like that, yes. So we, as humans, we have natural instinctive fears of certain things. There are things that are, we are designed to avoid. Uh, and that's a good thing because it keeps us alive. But generally then, it, are sharks a, just a man-made fear that we have come up with? Well, sharks in general don't really like human flesh. They like to bite into a seal that has three or four inches of really thick fat all the way around it. And when they bite into us, even, even those of us, like me, who are a little bit overweight, we don't have nearly three to four inches of of fat completely around our body. They typically bite into our arms or our legs. And for the most part, they spit you back out because it's not the uh, high-calorie food source that they want that is less likely to punch them in the eye or hurt them. So they would swim away then and go and, and look for a better food source for themselves. So this is a fear, though, in a lot of cases that has been then created by Hollywood or by TV, but it's a really, and I say, well, then why do they keep doing it? It's a lucrative fear. Hollywood. It's a lucrative field. And there's enough of us who get attacked and bitten and and die from shark bites that it perpetuates that fear. So, yeah, because, I mean, this week or last week, I think I saw three or four... YouTube videos that popped up. One was of a model that was having a model shoot floating in the water and a shark bitter, and two were fishermen who all of a sudden had a giant great white take their catch right beside the boat, and one of them was a kayaker beating off a great white with his paddle to keep him away from the boat. Um, You know, it's out there. You see these things, and it's a good reminder. That's four out of how many people, but it's out there, and we all watch them. We all do, but how many people won the lottery last year or last week? You know, I mean, not, not the big mega lotteries, but the state lotteries. And, you know, they get a half a million here or a million there. And, you know, the odds, we're, we have more people that do that last week than worldwide got killed by sharks. Okay, so if the chances of running into a shark in, in a way that is going to be dangerous is exceedingly small, if it's even smaller that we're going to get attacked, if it's even smaller than that that we're going to get killed, 
And if we're terrified of these things, why do we subject ourselves by watching these shows and going to the movies and paying money? Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, there, there's several reasons. One of the reasons is we get major endorphin rushes when we survive, when we win the battle against the evil monster, whether it's a shark or whether it's Jason. You know, it doesn't matter, the slasher movies. And there's something very interesting about surviving a trauma. When you're doing it with another human being, you actually are bonded even closer together. So, first of all, it's a great date movie. It's a great movie to take take your <laughs> potential partner to because that endears them to you because you both survived this horrific trauma together without having to be kidnapped and beaten and tortured and all that kind of stuff in real life. Well, there's one other thing that dawned on me about these today. Um, I was thinking about this. They make terrific villains as well, because we live in a very sensitive, very politically correct society. Nobody is going, if you have a shark as the villain, no one's going to accuse you of racism or sexism or using cultural stereotypes of a bad guy. You can make a shark as bad as you want him, and they don't have a social media person saying, we need a more positive public image. They're perfect for that kind of thing. And maybe you and I should put together our, our website and start that and just start founding people. Yeah, you know? we're, we're fighting I mean, for the on. better perception of sharks. Exactly, because they're just poor little creatures trying to make a living. Would you, uh, as I let you go, would your view on this change, and I pro- it probably would, but and hopefully not, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, if you ever okay. came into contact and had an encounter with a shark, would your view on this change? Well... You know, I lived in Florida for a long time, and and I love the ocean, and I love snorkeling and sailing and like that. And I've seen lots. Of, I mean, you go snorkeling like near Angelfish Key in in South Florida, and you're in forty feet of water. You look down, and there's sharks swimming down below you, and they could care less about human beings because they got their other, you know, plenty of food to choose from, whether it's angelfish or lobsters and crabs and things like that, that they're out looking for. So probably not. Dr. John Huber, clinical forensic psychologist, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Uh, You know, the amazing thing about this is that we're terrified of sharks. We watch Discovery Channel, we watch Shark Week, we get used to, we have Sharknado movies, which are really the height of all time schlock, but people love them. And that's not even good enough for us now because now we've got in the latest Jurassic Park movie, that gigantic, insanely big creature that looks like a shark that was swimming under the surfers that was about to gobble up. And now there's a movie out called, was it Megalodon about the prehistoric extinct 150 foot long super shark? Like even regular sharks aren't good enough for us anymore. We're a weird people, aren't we? A weird species that goes to look for ways to terrify ourselves when there's no cause for it. And yet we do it. And Jaws and all of its sequels make millions and billions of dollars. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.